0: Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name is David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, we revisit one of the podcasts that we published earlier in the year, What Makes a Great First Nations Public Servant? I begin today's podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land from which we broadcast today, the Ngunnawal people. And I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the ongoing contribution they make to the life of our city and this region. I'd also like to acknowledge the custodians of all the lands on which people are listening to this podcast today. The public service offers opportunity to contribute to positive outcomes for Australian communities and to pursue rewarding careers but it also comes with challenges, obstacles, ethical dilemmas and racism for some of our First Nations public servants. Our conversation in this episode is an important one, with our guests today exploring the push and the pull factors for First Nations people inside the Australian public service. It was brought to our listeners in NAIDOC week, and as we are being encouraged to stand up for change, rally around Indigenous communities and make a stand for institutional and structural reforms, we thought it was a great podcast for you to listen to once again. The podcast features Professor Tom Kalmer, who is the Chancellor of the University of Canberra, and Kate Toman, who at the time was working in the Federal Department of Health, but Kate is now the Executive Director Research and Education at IATSIS, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. And the final guest was Jeff Richardson, PSM, a First Nations Development Consultant. They share their insights from decades of work inside the APS. The podcast begins with my voice. Now, Jeff, I might start with you, and I think before we get into the push and pull factors for First Nations people, I'd love to get your answer or to find out about where you were and how you felt when the Prime Minister accepted the Uluru Statement of the Heart. Um,
1: I'm assuming you're talking about... um The the current prime minister.
0: Yes, the current uh, prime minister.
1: Yes, the current Um, prime minister. Most people watching it um, on television on uh, on election night, and um, uh, Prime Minister Albanese getting up and uh, first of all moving the flags uh, into the screen shot, and uh, and then uh, having a very uh, uh, passionate uh, acceptance speech, of which he mentioned the the statement. It was a a really. I thought it was a very humbling moment for the prime minister, but also, uh, you know, a really uh, important message that um, that his government will um, will do its best to, to bring this uh, important um, policy across the line.
0: And Tom Kelmer? what,
1: oh, was,
2: your, yeah. what was your experience? Uh, yeah, I, I was uh, very happy to see, um, you know, at least the profiling of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, the recognition, and and. Uh, you know, the the commitment to advance the acceptance of the Uluru Statement from the heart and wanting to work uh, and looking at the three elements to that, uh, being the voice treaty uh, and uh, also truth-telling. Uh, There's still... That's just the beginning of the process. There's a, a long process to go. Uh, but what the Prime Minister Albanese did commit to was taking the uh, voice to parliament to a referendum and uh, to get it entrenched uh, in the Constitution, uh, which is a, a pretty bold step and uh, it's something that uh, you know is is, is welcomed, um, but there's a lot more to it than than just getting recognized
0: in the Constitution. All right, and, and Kate, your, your experience of, of that announcement?
3: Uh, look, I thought it was very impressive that the uh, new Prime Minister mentioned Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and, and First Nations as a priority area pretty well in his opening statement, um, where he actually had his, his welcome speech. Um, I agree that it's going to be a, a long road in terms of uh, negotiating reform, but it is uh, long overdue reform. And there are certainly other elements that we need to work through as a nation, such as uh, developing treaties for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and also considering um, the fact that our sovereignty has never been ceded and what that actually means for a contemporary uh, Australian society alongside uh, political reform, self-determination and advancement for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
0: So to you, Jeff, um, it sets a context, though, doesn't it, for the ongoing contribution and involvement of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in Um, the Australian Public Service. You've been working in the APS for for many, many years. What do you see at the moment are those push and pull factors for First Nations people working in the public sector?
1: Uh, There are are many. Um, Can I just uh, recap, uh, sorry, go back a bit um, and say that um, when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's um, uh, rights are... uh, um, are observed and granted and acknowledged. Um, that doesn't diminish the rest of the nation. Um, and there's this, there's always this fear um, of if we, if our people gain rights, um, uh, somehow mainstream Australia loses. Um, and that's never been the case and never will be. Um, everyone wins when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples' rights are. Um, or acknowledged and, and respected and and, um, and adhered to, granted. Um, so um, there's nothing to fear from from the voice or, or treaties, um, nothing at all. Um, just in relation to push pull factors, look, there's so many. Um, people enter the public service for a whole range of reasons, like non-indigenous people. Um, many of the people that I know, friends of mine, and and the two to um, colleagues here on the on the panel, um, we entered into the public service to serve the public, and in, in particular our own people. But um, so there's a strong push to, to come into to the public service because, first of all, it's a, it's a great place to work. Um, I recommend it for anyone and everyone. Um, but the reasons for coming into the public service are, are many. Uh, for me, I... I uh, relish the thought, uh, jumped on the, uh, the opportunity to work for my mob. And I know plenty of the people in Aboriginal people in the public service and Torres Strait Islanders um, have joined for that that purpose. But um, for that reason, but there are a whole range of factors <laughs> uh, behind staying in that we might explore in this uh, in this discussion.
0: Yeah, I'm sure we will. But th- so from your point of view, Tom, what was it that, that drew you into a career of, of public service?
2: Um, well, I suppose, uh, uh, you know, and I should say that I, I retired from the APS in 2010, but I'd spent 38 years in, in the APS prior to that. And, um, and I think it highlighted when I first started what uh, the benefits of role models and and mentors uh, because my father was my role model who was in the APS and uh, encouraged me to, to get in because he saw that that was uh, a career opportunity. Uh, and I actually went into mainstream, um, a mainstream department um, at the time, and and uh, you know after almost a decade transitioned over to Aboriginal Trusted and Islander Affairs. Affairs, uh, but uh, all the time you know seeing how to how to advance Aboriginal Trusted and people. So over the years we've seen actually uh, many different um, reasons why people join the APS, and and uh, it's. You know, as Jeff said, primarily many people join because they want to do uh, do good for our mob and 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 get into a position. I think sometimes that's not always realistic um, because there's a, you know a, a long road to, to be able to get into be a, a policy influencer. Um, but over the years, we've seen uh, more and more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people graduating from university or at least getting a tertiary experience. They come out with a multiple of of professional experiences. And so that's really opened up opportunities across all departments, uh, beyond uh, the the Indigenous Affairs uh, departments. And so I'm I'm seeing a lot more people with professional qualifications coming in and seeing a career in the public service or an opportunity to to come in and um, from the private sector into the public sector and, and move backwards and forwards. and I think that's really the way to go into the into the future to, to, to broaden the, the whole experiences of all the public service. Uh, but you know we're committed to to service and I
0: think that's that's the prime reason why people join. Mm. And Kate, what was, what was your experience? What was your story? What drew you to the public service?
3: Um, So government policy has had a profound impact on the lives of all Australians, but especially for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, And I was also um, motivated by the desire to work to improve outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There are a couple of push and pull factors that I see. In terms of the push factors, uh, a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are currently over-promised roles and impact. And it's currently difficult to achieve real impact at the lower levels of the Australian public service. We have challenges with um, poor supervision and lack of cultural sensitivity and understanding and supervisors don't always provide uh, constructive or clear advice in their communication expectations and feedback the cultural contribution and the lived experience and the value that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bring to the APS is not always heard, recognised and valued. However, the pull factors far outweigh those challenges. The pull factors are we have an ability to contribute to social policy in a way that you can only achieve in the public service. Mm. We have an ability to improve outcomes and the lived daily reality through government policy for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and communities. And the other pull factor is our commitment, passion and desire to work hard to improve outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the nation itself. It's a fantastic place to work.
0: Mm. And from your experience, how has it been for you you through your career, your personal experience?
3: Oh look, it's been it's been fantastic. Um, I started as uh, an Aboriginal cadet while I was still studying at university, and that program was actually a very successful program um, offered by uh, the Australian government. It doesn't exist at the moment, but there are certainly several other current Indigenous SES officers that were recruited to the public service um, through that. Mm. Um, um, And I've I've been fortunate enough through my career to work across multiple um, Commonwealth agencies, contribute to um, policy in a really broad ranging and diverse way and get immense joy and satisfaction of uh, working on government policy to a re- realise real uh, lived impact for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. It's incredibly rewarding. Mm.
0: Now, Jeff, the, the three of you uh, who are on this uh, program today are examples of senior people who have succeeded, who have got to the top of the Australian Public Service. But why is it that we see that a majority of Indigenous public servants are clustered around that APS four level. What what's your view as to why there is that grouping at around that level?
1: Look, there, there as always, there are a whole range of reasons. I think uh, uh, Kate spelled out some of the reasons, and that is um, that often the skill sets that, uh, and the the, um, the the traits and characteristics and, and um, life experience of our, of our people. Um, aren't really recognised, particularly uh, for people at the lower levels coming in. It's much harder when you come in as a a lower level person um, uh, to uh, express yourself and to be recognised for the skills you bring in. There's biases in the system uh, that very much lean towards the mainstream way of doing things. Um, We know that... um, the mainstream way of serving Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, has contributed or kept the, the, the gap in our life expectancy and, and life outcomes wider than it, you know, than it necessarily should be. Uh, we know that mainstream approaches, uh, the biases in the, in the system um, often go against Aboriginal uh, and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, the lower levels don't get the opportunities, they don't get the training and skills development, um, and indeed, um, they struggle uh, often. Uh, people at that level, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, struggle to have a voice. Um, uh, so the system is is inherently biased um, in 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 so far as not recognising what people Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people bring to the sector uh, to the APS. Uh, and as a consequence, um, it's very hard for people to go up the up the ladder. So you know. It needs to be more of an understanding in the system of the APS of what we bring. Um, Tom, Kate, and I, uh, operating at the SES level, had to do everything that the other SES officers were required to do. But I, uh, something that I, I, I often say. But when we're out engaging, um, particularly with our own people, we're doing uh, we're, we're drawing on skills that that aren't really often recognised. Um, so we're doing. We're doing work that um, that people only people with our skills can can deliver, but often that's overlooked, and I would say that would be the same for for people at the lower levels. Mm. So, Tom, your view on this
0: sort of inherent bias that is in the system that Jeff talks about? How well is it being addressed in your experience? And I know that you're not in the APS as such, but you're sort of living in, in, in the town or the, in Canberra, obviously, So you do, and you're in heavily involved in all sorts of uh, uh, roles. So I'm sure you have a view around that, that bias.
2: Yeah, I, I do. And I think one of the, uh, the other important considerations is Jeff and I both started off working at a regional level in, in a state office and, and, and uh, only mid-career. That we actually came into the national offices um, in Canberra, uh, so we've got that breadth of experience. And I think, you know, in, in response to that other question uh, about you know people at the at the lower levels, uh, that's where a lot of the entry level for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are at, into the service roles um, across agencies, uh, and and sometimes, uh, but it's very limited, the opportunity to. Uh, to move up up the ranks, and so, you know, within uh, the importance, I think within the the uh, APS is that that you don't just stay in one area, that you take opportunities uh, to move laterally and and even move uh, interstate if necessary to take on those opportunities and 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 to get that experience, and not to to shy away, um, you know, uh, as you get uh, you know a little bit more advanced. Um, uh, you know to, to shy away from opportunities take uh, take them if they're presented, uh, but also initiate some yourself and that, that's a, a real challenge. But the biases are there, and I think that's that hasn't changed uh, actually over the years um, that that you get people in major policy levels who don't have uh, field experience and they don't have broad experience. Uh, and this is where we try and encourage them. To listen to Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people in the field, uh, who have had that lived experience, who are able to, to talk about whether a policy is going to uh, succeed or not, and, and uh, you know, but we've also got the challenge of of um, you know senior bureaucrats moving on, uh, politicians moving on, wanting to to throw their own little uh, you know uh, influence over over programs that sometimes aren't aren't soundly based. And so, you know, there needs to be more opportunities. And, and look, to the credit of the APS, we've, we've had, uh, you know, cultural competency training coming through and, and a lot more exposure in, in recent years. Uh, but we've also advanced, we haven't advanced it. At, at one stage, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the government had uh, a secretary's council uh, of equality and diversity. Uh, and, and I was fortunate to be appointed. As an external member to that, working with all the secretaries to look at at these very issues that that exist uh, and the and the biases, and it's the things like unconscious bias that that uh, people rely too much on media to get an understanding about Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people and many other things. Whereas if they had the the on the ground experience, it's life changing, and and those who have been out and worked with Aboriginal people in the ground to see how. Policy should be developed or implemented. Uh, they come back very much changed, yes. and so we see good policy. So, so there's a lot of work needs to take place. Um, but you know, having having leadership at both the political level and and the senior bureaucratic level who want to have a positive attitude towards Aboriginal trusted on the people and and recognition, uh, you know, really bodes well for I think a, a
0: good positive future. Yeah, and Kate, your views on on the. Why people are clustered? Um, you've heard Tom's views and Jeff's views. You agree with both of those? And <coughs> excuse me. And perhaps to that issue of, of biases in the system, do you see them there, and are they being adequately addressed?
3: Um, look I, I totally agree with what um, Tom and Jeff have, have both said. I think one of the challenges that we currently have is that we have our entry-level programs that we specifically recruit to at the lower levels um, We don't um, necessarily um, target, recruitment to the higher levels, Um, not to say that there hasn't been great advancements in that, but um, because we recruit so many Aboriginal people through the lower level programs, you can see why we've got significant challenges at the APS-4 levels. Um, What I will say is um, there has been uh, quite a lot of of change, including at the senior executive levels. Um, Once upon a time, um, both Tom and Jeff were in a very limited cohort of Indigenous SES officers A couple of years ago, it reached about 25, and over the last two years, it's doubled, and there's probably about uh, 50 Indigenous SES officers across the Commonwealth. Now, that is a fantastic and a massive achievement. However, we still need about 1,500 Indigenous SES officers to actually reach (laughs) parity across the Commonwealth. So you can see why um, there are significant challenges for us you know, including in having an ability to be able to influence government outcomes at that very senior uh, level. Um, I mean, that's also offset. We've been talking about the election of the new government and just how many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people we now have in Parliament, uh, which is wonderful to see. And hopefully that will also translate through um, broader commitment to really listen to and privilege some of the advice of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, bureaucrats, some of that frank and fearless advice, Um, that politicians get in terms of, um, you know, informing uh, political decisions um, that that they make as politicians which can impact on our lives.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and, you know, we've just seen uh, with Minister White being the first minister for Indigenous Australians, now we've got Minister Burney in that role. We now have our first, uh, not not our first, uh, well, it's the first for the agency, um, the National Indigenous Australians Agency, headed up by a female Aboriginal. And, um, you know, that that's sends a big strong message because at that level she'll then be working with all the other secretaries of departments and have an influence over over the way, um, you know, they might go about their business. Because I think one of the things that we... One of the issues we have is that a lot of people think and a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people think they have to get into Indigenous affairs and join an Indigenous agency. But it's the responsibility of all agencies Mm. to service all people, including Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people. And the majority of money and programs actually come out of mainstream Mm. that go towards
0: uh, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander people. Mm. Um, Jeff, this is an awkward question, an awkward topic, but um, probably needs to be addressed. And that's just this uh, racism in in the APS. Uh, You've been in the APS a long time. What is your observation of the levels of racism in the APS and what can be done to address racism uh, in the APS?
1: Look, like, like anywhere, racism's um, a, scored, a skirt on society. Uh, um, it's absolutely inside the public sector, but it's in all workplaces. Um, uh, I think there's um, uh I think, first of all, um, there needs to be zero tolerance and every agency, the APS, would say there's a zero tolerance. Um, I think that the zero tolerance to racism is um, about direct racism more than sy- systemic racism and indirect. So it's more about explicit racism and the zero tolerance. But when it comes to indirect and systemic racism, that's often overlooked and they're the sorts of things that, It's the three levels or the three distinct categories of racism that need to be understood. So there needs to be more education um, across the APS. Obviously, there needs to to be this continual um, uh, commitment to zero tolerance of racism. But there needs to be mechanisms for people to call it out without fear. And often when you're, you know, for for people, uh, for the minorities, um, because we're different, we're culturally different. It's very difficult to go to a system that's uh, that you that you know is uh, is heavily biased uh, um, to call out racism. So many of the people um, uh, are fearful of calling it out because they don't feel that they're, that they're going to get a decent hearing. So um, more effort has to be made. Um, all agencies agencies. Um, uh, and departments um, are committed to, to um, zero tolerance, but it doesn't play out that way day to day. Um, and often the racism that um, people are subjected to um, uh, a more indirect and systemic, um, which um, frustrates people and, and they just feel um, um, uh, helpless in terms of calling it out. They don't have faith in the system. so. Um, they get more and more frustrated in the workplace, and that leads to a whole lot of um, other uh, um, negative uh, consequences um, and issues. So, uh, look, I think the, the the public sector just has to keep moving forward, more education, uh, and calling it out and showing, uh, demonstrating uh, this zero tolerance uh, in a much more stronger way. Has it been tough for you? Uh, Yeah, look, it's been tough for the three of us, but it's, uh, you know, you have to work it out if, if, you know, you've got to have a strong sense of purpose to stay in the public service for as long as the three of us Uh, have. We know there's plenty of non-Indigenous colleagues that have also spent long careers in the public service. Um, I should add that for me, it was always a privilege to work in the public service. I was never embarrassed about it as an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person. I was very proud to be a public servant. Even when my my own mob said, "Boy, you work there. <laughs> Why do you work in that place, man? For just stay so long?" Uh, it was because my sense of purpose was, uh, and always will be, that um, I was getting paid to serve the public, and that that to me is a privilege. Mm. Tom, your your
0: experiences—it's—it's it's such an ugly, shameful, horrible. <laughs> topic but it's got to be talked about so look it
2: does have to be talked about um, for five years I was the National race discrimination Commissioner with the the Human Rights Commission and and you know I can say quite um, confidently that this is not just an APS issue it's across uh, APS or com off agencies as well as private sector and so forth and and uh, uh, it's an issue that we all have to as as public servants uh uh, really confront, and I think it's one that that needs to continually be uh, at the forefront of thinking. Um, you know, and 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 it's very difficult to tease out uh, the difference between what's racism, what's discrimination, both direct and and indirect uh, discrimination, and what's what's bias. Uh, I I um, still work uh, consult to a com-off agency and and uh, work with staff. Uh, the Aboriginal trusted on the staff, and I think having having uh, networks within the um, within each of the departments and agencies is so important for for people to get some moral support as well as uh, some advice uh, to to address these issues. Uh, we we you know I mentioned the cultural competency training, um, you know which is so important for everybody to to undertake. It was at one stage being reported against. Um, to the Secretary's group, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's so actively uh, pursued nowadays, but um, it's, it's uh, one that I'd really encourage people to look at. The APS also ran an initiative looking at unconscious bias. Um, you know, that needs to be ramped up again and, and for people to understand why they make um, decisions and why their attitude towards uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is like it is, um, you know, both positive and negative, but mainly the negative side of it, is, it's a lack of understanding. And the, the staff that I talk to, um, you know, who are experiencing difficulties at the workplace, uh, at the workplace, often it's because their supervisors are not skilled enough to understand what they're doing. And, and, and uh, you know, so w- we have to invest a lot more in, in um, you know, making sure that our line supervisors actually understand um, the role of supervision as well as as everything that goes with it so I encourage people to really um, become informed and we talk about this at at our um, you know network meetings uh, you know understand what your what the APS core values are and and what you can expect as an APS uh, employee and take that back to your supervisor if you're if you're not um, being um, you know felt to be uh, uh, treated well or, or, or racially discriminated, um, we now have Indigenous champions uh, within most most government mm. departments who who are there to to lend support and to take up our issues. So so we, we're getting some structural issues in place, but that doesn't mean that people don't still have their biases and 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 that leads to discrimination and and racism. You know my yeah i've I've experienced it um, you know myself over over the over the years, but I guess I've been in a position where I've uh, you know become you know I, I was very well informed and and can call it out. And I think that's the other important thing about networks is that you 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 get your your support from your colleagues to be able to call out these issues. and but to do it in a way that that um, you know not going to alienate you in the workplace, but, uh, to make the workplace a better one, and and not, you know, one of the things we saw too much of was that people would have a bad experience, so they they'd leave leave the APS, and so we, we we're having a big drain. Um, that's slowing down a lot now, and um, and we do that. We have a an Indigenous SES network uh, where all the Indigenous SES get together, and um, you know. Um, Jeff and I were on it in the very early days when there's only a dozen or so <laughs> SES people. Then by the time Kate got on, uh, probably just less than a decade ago, we we're up to 25, 26, and now, now we're pretty, uh, you know, it's it's much improved as as we've said. But you know, I've I've uh, over the time still worked with with that network and and with the public service commissioner, um, uh, and and you know the, that's the good thing about it is that we have this network here that the, the Public Service Commissioner and departments are seeking advice from the Senior Aboriginal Trusted Honourable people on on how to look at, at addressing some of these issues. So, you know, that we haven't always been included
0: in that process, but, uh, you know, that recognition is happening. Great. And Kate, your your experience of, of, of racism in the APS?
3: Um... I think it's actually just broader than the APS. So in my view, unfortunately, racism is prevalent in our society. It ranges from casual racism, ignorance, overt racism to structural and institutional racism. And unfortunately, it, it is everywhere. But I actually have great hope for this country. Um, I mean, given the way that uh, Australia has been founded, uh, unfortunately, there are some very bad and prevalent views around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and I think some of those are slowly changing. We've now got Aboriginal truth uh, and Aboriginal history being taught in schools. We've now got um, non-Indigenous children starting to understand what nation and what country, whose Aboriginal country they live on. They're starting to learn um, Aboriginal languages. Now, maybe their parents might not be learning about the true history of Australia, but the children are, and they're actually... The hope for our future so you know I, I think there are some things that we can do we can and, and Jeff mentioned this we can actually as did Tom um, privilege First Nation voices but also we can give over a little bit of power which is to support Aboriginal people to make decisions become involved in co-design of government policy and priorities and as a nation support self-determination and Aboriginal advancement and we have a great opportunity to really um, have these conversations 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 in an open and an honest and a respectful way going forward uh, as a country?
0: Very powerful answer. Um, now, listen, we, we get the opportunity from uh, to take questions from IPA ACT's Future Leaders Committee members. Uh, we do ask them to send some questions in, and we have a couple of questions here today. Uh, and the first of those questions is from Megan Aponte-Payne from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and a sometime host of Work With Purpose as well. And, Kate, I'll put the question to you. Does having a seat at the majority white table mean having a voice for your Indigenous community or compromising your values.
3: Um, no, I don't compromise my values. Um, I I do have a a seat at the table, but I will say at times it has been challenging. Um, Even as an Indigenous SES officer, there have been many, many occasions where I have been the only First Nations person at the table, um, dealing with all of my non-Indigenous colleagues who work in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs, um, who make the decisions and may not necessarily make the same decisions or provide the same advice that, uh, Uh, First Nations bureaucrat would, um, and at times that can be uh, really challenging, but um, I I think it's fundamental that we do need Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representation at all levels and in all tables um, around uh, government uh, decision-making policies, um, yeah, just across the country.
0: Okay, Tom, I'll put the same question to you. Does having a seat at the majority white table mean having a voice for your Indigenous community? or is it compromising your values?
2: Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, th- what's got to be teased out is your Indigenous community. Are we talking about our, our specific uh, community or are we talking about Indigenous affairs generally? Right. And I think, you know, what Kate said is quite right, that, uh, you know, often we are a minority. And, um, uh, you know, and as, as you advance in the, in the APS and you get up to the SES level and, and particularly uh, advance within the SES level, and we have some, um, you know, uh, deputy secretaries as well as, as uh, branch heads and, and FASs around. So, so, you know, they're having a lot more authority in, in these meetings. Um, but at, at the lower levels, it makes it very difficult. You know, I'm, I, I guess I'm, I'm fortunate now that, that I do have a bit of authority in, 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 and people do listen to what I have to say. But, you know, and that just hasn't come. We're talking... You know, fifty years of work, <laughs> working—not not, not quite fifty, but you know, forty-five to to uh, uh, to get to that level. So it's not going to happen always overnight. And I think that's what frustrates people—that um, you know, people come in with a passion, and we touched on it briefly before. But there's also an expectation by the Aboriginal the community that uh, you know that that, oh, yeah, you're a public servant, you know, you should be looking after our mob and, and changing this and changing that. Well, unfortunately, we can't always uh, do that. But, you know, I don't think we ever uh, stop trying to influence policy. So, yeah, it is it is a challenge. Uh, but, you know, and, and maybe this is the time to talk about it. We are seeing uh, real big advances in the way that that the public service, and, and I talk broadly, um, and but particularly with a few agencies, are going about their business nowadays, and 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 the whole notion of what we call co-design is now happening, and uh, you know the uh, Indigenous Health Division of of Department of Health was probably the leader in this working with. Uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Leadership in developing the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Health Plan, which was co-designed, it was led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, supported by the Department and other agencies to look at a very broad uh, approach to health and 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 bringing in the determinants. And we've followed that through in a couple of iterations of that, and and that's now um, become the model, uh, I think, to uh, uh, to go about business in major. Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people reform, uh, reforms, and and we've seen that also uh, in more recent times uh, with the Voice to Parliament that that was under the previous government it was initiated, where where we had a co design group of 52 people who worked with the bureaucrats in in the agencies uh, to come up with a, a new model about going about business, and and that's still a, a big work in progress, and that also is something that needs to be teased out because we've got at one, one level running the, the, the voice to parliament um, uh, through the Uluru Statement, what they want and, and, and uh, are promoting um, uh, through constitutional reform. But the other one is within bureaucracy, that takes in more than just the Commonwealth, but takes in um, the state and territory governments, which is where a lot of the effort does happen in Indigenous affairs, not out of the Commonwealth. It's out of the state and territories, so that's all been done through a co-design process, and and um, you know what's being proposed and what's been picked up by, by the previous government, and, and we're in negotiations with the incoming government to see how how that might, fo- uh, you know, unfold over the coming years. But we will see, I think, much more privileging of Aboriginal trusted Islander voices in in policy, major policy, um, and program development, and. And, you know, high time too. So it's, uh, yeah.
0: Excellent. Um, Jeff. I have a question for you. And again, a future uh, leaders question. And it's from Anthony Pronin of the uh, Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment. And Anthony asks, what are some of the different considerations of a recruitment or retention strategy for Indigenous public servants?
1: Um, th- thanks for the question, David. Um, look, uh, I think... Um, the design of jobs, the job description. Um, I think there has to be more thought put into uh, um, into the the selection criteria, um, more effort um, uh, made in looking at the skill sets needed for the positions um, to to attract Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to a particular department or to the APS, there's a fair bit uh, of effort needed in in the whole design of um, of the jobs uh, and the advertising of them and, and being a, a so-called employer of of choice. So, uh, attracting people to the to the place, to the APS, um, uh, what what will make Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people interested? You've got to sort of tap into into. The, the, the psyche of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Why would they come to a place that they believe isn't you know isn't working in in the best interest of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? So you have got to sort of pick, turn the, um, the 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 whole situation around where um, it is isn't attractive. The APS is not an attractive place and is seen as an employer uh, an, an employer of choice. The whole service or the, the department in. In us, individual departments in particular um, I think there needs to be a recognition of of what we bring and what what value we bring to the public sector um uh rather than doing us a favor by an employ- employing us uh, employing our people um yes it, uh, you're giving Aboriginal touch Islander people an opportunity but we are bringing um we're bringing life experience Experience. We're bringing cultural knowledge. We're bringing engagement skills. We're bringing a raft of skills. Even at, um, if you're employing people at the lower level, they have these skills. Some of our um, some of our elders and, and um, senior people in the community are employed at the lower levels. So when they walk outside, we all respect them for their for the cultural authority, even though they might be junior officers in the public sector. So uh, it's quite complex, but um, uh, with, with a bit of effort. Um, recognising the skill sets that we have already and building on those, you know, taking an assets-based approach rather than uh, a deficit where, we, you know, we don't have, our people don't necessarily have the whole suite of um, uh, mainstream bureaucratic skills. A lot of our people do, by the way. Um, but, but seeing it as a deficit and not not seeing the strength side of it uh, and that diminishes what um, and blocks opportunities of people to, to, to enter and to rise through the ranks um, because, again, of those inherent biases.
0: Interesting. You know,
1: I think that can be turned around just with a bit of effort.
0: Yeah, well, interestingly enough, you'll be pleased to know, um, Jeff and Kate and, and Tom, that uh, there is a hackathon, an IPPA hackathon uh, next week, which is going to explore that very question. So people are going to get to work um, across the APS and uh, and I think they can take some advice from uh, from the answer that Jeff's just given us there. I think there's a, a lot to go on.
2: Yeah, very comprehensive. And I think the, you know, if, if there's been one one big benefit for the APS uh, out of COVID is that people have realised that you can work differently, um, you know. And, and in fact, some of the ways that we're currently going about our business are what Aboriginal Trusted Honor people have been trying to encourage, you know, more flexible working, understanding the purpose of cultural leave and the, and the need to be with family, um, you know, that you can work from from home and still be productive and that just because you're working from home or out of office, it doesn't mean that you're slacking off. It just is a different way and I think, you know, this has given the opportunity for for uh, all public servants to, uh, to maybe take a fresh look at the way they go about business and having a better appreciation of some of the ways that uh, Aboriginal Trusted on the people have uh, gone, and look a- as co-chair. Reconciliation can also put in a plug for reconciliation action plans that are across many government departments, and it's really important for for both the Aboriginal Trusted on the staff and and the mainstream um, uh, uh, staff to understand what's in those wraps and and uh, what their departments committed to, and how they can work together. and And it's so you know, for me, I get a big buzz when I when I go to a NADOC event or a Close the Gap event, um, you know, National Reconciliation Week, and we see uh, mainstream departments all celebrating these these events. So, mm. you know, this didn't happen 20 years ago. Um, you know, 10 years ago it started, um, but, but uh, yes, it's getting much better. So I think it's in, um, you know, in all of our interests. But I think one of the things we haven't picked up on here is that, you know, APS, is a big family of departments, and uh, you know it, it's it's both in the regional level, which is critically important for service delivery to the to the Canberra policy uh, and program area. To what I had the opportunity to do, and that was uh, to be a diplomat for you know for seven years working in India and Vietnam, and and uh, you know so all of these you know coming from a you know Darwin office, uh, you know starting off as a. As you know, a base grade, and uh, you know, taking those opportunities, and and you know, I think is it shows that you can do it. We now have uh, have had um, you know two ambassadors, Indigenous ambassadors, uh, placed overseas. We've got an Aboriginal uh, or Torres Strait Islander uh, consul general over there. So we're we're advancing. It's always slow, but when you go back to where we were at, and you can look at it over the over the you know, the, the course
0: of time, you'll see that we are getting there, but ever so slowly. Now, quickly, I just want to sneak a question about NADOC Week, which is this celebration of the history, the culture and the achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. The theme for NADOC Week 2022 is get up, stand up and show up. So for our friends listening, many of them in the APS, What's your call to action for each of the people listening to it this particular Nadoc week? And I'll start with you, Tom. Uh, look, exactly what, what it
2: says, you know, get up, stand up and, um, and, and show up, you know, participate in events. But also don't be informed by, by some of the, uh, the shock jocks or, or, you know, some of the uh, uh, cable television channels. Uh, about indigenous affairs, uh, go out to an event, talk to an Aboriginal trusted on a person you know go on to niTV, understand what they're talking about SBS uh, you know in news from an Aboriginal trusted on the person's perspective and so it's it, we're, it's incumbent on all of us to develop our own knowledge and skills base and and we do that in an informed way uh, from good reliable sources so yeah yeah you know be 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 part of the process don't be a
0: you know, a, a critic. Okay, Jeff. To you, get up, stand up, show up. What's your call to action to the people of the APS?
1: Uh, look, it, it's a great um, theme for this year. Um, that's sort of uh, it's a rallying call, um, and it's something that um, we we uh, as senior public servants or Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander public servants generally. Um, it's it's something that we, we we do daily. Get up, stand up. Um, uh, I, I would encourage um, uh, non-indigenous uh, public servants to to join us, to, to see us as as, as um, trusted colleagues, to lead the way, to 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 call out um, uh, unprofessional behaviour in the workplace, to 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 seek to understand uh, that... The true history history of the nation, and and the the the, the obviously the the, the, the positive uh, advances, but also the challenges that are still yet to be um, uh, confronted in terms of uh, the, the the disparity in life outcomes for Strait Islander peoples, and that is part of their job. Um, so to, to to get more and more uh, immersed into um, into um, the consequences of past policies you know we're, we're, we're currently dealing with with policies the consequences of policies that were enacted like a hundred years ago. they're playing out today it's often ignored um, uh, but the reality is actions that, uh, and policies that were enacted you know in the in the 1800s and early 1900s we're, we're trying to deal with the consequences you know a hundred years later over 100 years later. That is the gravity of the work and the, the magnitude of the challenge. Until people own uh, the true history, as, uh, as, as Kate was talking, uh, you've got to own the reality and the history to understand um, how to respond with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, with the support of our people, uh, positively in the APS. Uh, uh, but, uh, unfortunately, there's still uh, uh, a fair deal of ignorance and denial um, uh, and an expectation that, that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the departments are going to uh, are going to educate their colleagues. Well, uh, I think that's unfair. They need to try and educate themselves and seek guidance from the very people that uh, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, their colleagues. But it's not the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander colleagues' responsibility for educating educating them. Uh, there's a lot of goodwill, but um, we we need that to you know we need this to be accelerated and brought home in real action.
0: Thanks, Jeff And Kate, the final word is yours.
3: Oh, thank you. <laughs> so we are the oldest living continuous culture on earth and we've been here since time immemorial. We have such an incredible depth, beauty and interconnection in our culture, country, spirituality and beliefs. My call to action is multiple, but it's actually really quite simple. Um, Understand history, including local history, and understand whose land you are living on. Care for country and support traditional fire burning practices. These practices also protect us from natural disasters, and there is much to be learned from our traditional ecological knowledge and practices. Make reconciliation everybody's business. Stand up to racism, because the behaviour that you don't call out is the behaviour that you stand by and accept. Support self-determination. Support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff in their careers, their development and their work aspirations. Provide mentoring, advice and opportunities. Put your money where your mouth is. Support Aboriginal people and small businesses. This can make a world of difference not only to an individual, a business, a family or a community. And finally, ask, listen, learn and act with integrity and respect.
0: Yeah. Fine, fine words to uh, sum up this conversation for NAIDOC week in 2022. So a very big thanks to Professor Tom Karma, to Kate Toman and to Jeff Richardson. Thank you all so much for sharing your wisdom uh, and sharing your knowledge with the audience here at Work With Purpose. We are certainly very grateful uh, for your time uh, to celebrate NAIDOC week. Work With Purpose is a part of the GovCom's podcast network and we are very grateful for your ongoing support. A big thanks as always to IPA and to the Australian Public Service Commission for their support of the program and also to the team at Content Group for getting the program to air each week. This brings the this episode of Work With Purpose to a close. My name is David Pembroke. I'll be back at the same time in two weeks, but for the moment... It's bye for now.
2: Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission.